0: So I was just upstairs uh, speaking to a staff member, and I asked her if she knew who was speaking tonight. And she said, I think it's the third guy. (laughs) 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 I love that. (laughs) I like being anonymous here. I wasn't on the brochure. I haven't met most of you. Most of you have never heard me speak. There's something real creative right before the opinions get formed. <laughs> I know I'm going to be slotted shortly, so let me enjoy it just for a <laughs> uh, So tonight um, I'd like to talk about the room of the mind, the room of the mind. And when I was a, a boy, I had a game that used to frustrate me no end. It was a a game that was all metal. The top of the game was uh, circular and it had holes in it like Swiss cheese, about the same size. And It was attached to a pair of tweezers that was also electronically attached to the metal container and the whole thing was plugged into the socket and inside the Swiss cheese holes at the bottom were little metal logs. The object was to take the Swiss cheese, excuse me, to take the tweezers, stick it through the hole, pick up the metal logs without touching the sides of the container, or a light would go off in a big buzzer. (laughs) And being uh, less than exact in my mindfulness... I uh, would often touch the sides of the container to hear the buzzer and the frustration. And with it, of course, the chatter of, oh, I'm not as good as my brother, and uh, I'm not as good as I was last time, or whatever. In any case, I learned something about technique from having played that game. Most of you, many of you, are uh, yogis who have practiced for some time. About a third are brand new. And we all have different relationships to the practice and form of mindfulness, the sitting meditation. Some of you on and during the interviews have expressed a kind of comparison quality to your sitting, where you don't feel you're sitting as still as the person in front of you or behind you or as if you knew. And in fact, you sit back there with your eyes open glazing in front of you at the back of the people's heads and to make assumptions about how your practice isn't as still as everyone else's. And this whole sense of comparison and judgment certainly follows us into the technique when the technique is so much a focus, so much a central part of what we do here and how we think we are being evaluated by one another. How slow we walk, how straight we sit, how still we sit, how long we sit. And yet, it's very important, and I think an important step uh, is to understand that that is really unessential practice. Unessential practice. So what I'd like to do tonight is talk about what the spirit of the practice is. Not the technique or the form of sitting up straight and doing it properly. That's just being a good boy or a good girl. But the spirit of what it is that this whole practice is about. And so I brought my prop... My trusted flashlight, and we will go into this a little bit. Now, if you look at this room as our consciousness, not our unity consciousness, but the consciousness of each and every one of our minds, and what we have been doing is flashing a light of our attention upon something in this room. And the first thing we realize as we flash our attention inwardly is how <laughs> virtually i see nothing i'm i'm not even used to looking in here i'm used to looking out the window <laughs> i would much prefer to look out but this is being a retreat and this is what this is supposed to do i'll look at myself inside and not very much, mostly it's a blur Mostly it's like going down the road about 70 miles an hour and looking out the side of your car. Everything's sort of a blur. And over time, the instructions, very simple as they are, is to try to sustain our attention, being this light, on an object like the breath. And it stays for a breath or two and it's off again, dancing throughout the room, usually trying to find an area of the room that it likes better than this one. LAUGHTER So it'll stay for a while and not very long if we're really honest with one another and before it dances off again. And over time, over a long period of time, what you begin to find is that you do have a growing capacity to sustain your attention on an object. Now that can't be judged from one sitting to another. As a matter of fact, the line of the graph is up but the individual graph itself is very much of a jagged line all the way up and it's not up from one day to the next it may well be down from one day to the next but that is only a part of the practice sustaining our attention on something because how could you see unless you held the, the light still couldn't be impossible you can't see this way there's nothing that was that can be noticed the other part of the practice which is the quality of mindfulness or awareness, or attention, is to see where the attention is focused. To look at it. And something amazing happens in that looking. We begin to understand it. Now we can't understand anything until the light is stationary. And we certainly can't understand anything until we see it. But once we see it, it begins to be understandable. What most of us do is that the median of this room, the content of this room, is filled with the noise of our thinking. And we're so used to shining our attention, if we shine it at all, inwardly, which most of us aren't even used to doing that, we shine it through all of the noise And we look at something, and we see the opinions and judgments and attitudes and beliefs that we have about it. So that we really never see it at all. We just see the noise associated with the coloration of it. And so what we're trying to do in this early stage of practice, this early stage of instruction, is to come below the level of that noise the actual experience of self prior to the formation of thought about something. And what that does is that it allows us to actually perceive it quietly in stillness. And then we can actually see it the way it is not the way we believe it to be. You see? So let us look about what we bring to the room, what we bring to this understanding, what we bring to the sight, to the flashlight. Most of us have lived lives of achievement, lives of goals, of standards, of acquisition, of accomplishments, of a great deal of social worth and good lives for the most part. But what we have done and the strategies that we've employed in our external environment are the strategies of goal-setting, achievement, competition for the most part in this culture and with a very definite sense for most of us of inadequacy because we're never as good as the best person in the class. And unfortunately, in an economy that is geared towards selling you something, there's a basic basic sense of inadequacy that we all have because we have to feel inadequate in order to be sold something. You have to feel as if you're in need in order to buy. And so the culture engenders a sense of inadequacy in order to sell you something. That's what we live with. It's not a judgment, it's just a... Objective view, really. So that's what we bring into the room. And those are the strategies, those are the patterns, those are the ways we've lived. Now we come into the room, into the room of our minds. And because we have been successful in employing those strategies, we try to use those same strategies in understanding ourselves and achieving a meditation high, or a spiritual growth, or whatever we conceive of as the product of what we want to get out of our meditation. In fact, I do a series of classes in Seattle, and for the beginning level student, I ask them up front, what is it that they would like to get out of? What are their expectations coming into meditation? And they say things like, less stress in my life more peace, a quieter mind, happiness, on and on. Now it's interesting, you see, when you bring a goal like that into your internal watching, that goal is looked at. You start looking for it in your mind. Where in my mind is there peace? (laughs) And you may find some. You may find some back in that corner. And you think, okay, I'm, I'm heading out to that corner. <laughs> and I'm going to rest over there. And you get to that corner, and of course it's changed, and you can't find it, or you find a little bit of it. But the po- point is that we try to focus in on a certain product because we carry that strategy into our sitting. We also carry that strategy into our inward, inward world from our external world because they've worked in the external world. It's worked. So we employ it in here. And so we try to set up a house like we set up house externally. We try to clean it up, rearrange it, bring forth some spirit of peace and quietude or whatever our expectations are around sitting. We paint the walls. And all of this is a modification. It's okay. It's not... Everyone or most people really begin practice in this way. But very quickly, we notice that there is sort of an unsteady quality in everything that this space holds. That it doesn't last very long, even as we try to cultivate more and more of it. That it has a... I mean... there are certain qualities of mind that we can engender and that we can cultivate and that will have greater and greater effect upon us but we can't count on them. We can't count on them to be there when we want them to be there. Like your ability to sustain your attention. Some of you in your interviews have said, well, the morning sitting was so nice and yet I lost it all in the afternoon. I Couldn't even find my breath and All qualities of behavior, all qualities of mind are like that. They're just not dependable. And so we look around and we really don't see an awful lot in this room that is dependable. Not something that I can hang my hat on. Occasionally, happiness flies through. Occasionally, joy Sorrow, struggle is throughout the room. And most of us try to wall off ourselves from that struggle, from that suffering. We try to create a room that doesn't contain the suffering. So that my life can be lived in a corner and the struggle and the difficulty can be in some other area of the room. So rather than trying to end suffering, many of us want to get away from it, which is a very different strategy. Now that strategy would work, and this is kind of an important point, that strategy would work if I were on the outside of my mind looking in. I could rearrange it like a deck of cards. I could do something to it. But it does not work because of the fact that you are in this room as well. You're right here. And may I say, there is no escape. So, what do you do? Where do you go? How can you run away from it? You're in here too. In Dante's Hell, it is said that over the door of the hell realm, it is written, give up any hope of leaving. And I'm sure those unfortunate beings that find themselves in that realm Take that as hopelessness, but I take that as hope because in that is the escape clause. There will be and cannot be any escape from this room as long as we are maneuvering around in it, trying to find A location of quietude, of solace, of peace. Distancing ourselves from some corner away from another. Moving towards something and away from something else. No rest. We must give up that strategy entirely. The strategies that have worked for us externally have nothing to do with our internal growth, our spiritual growth. We must leave those behind. This is not an evolution of being. This is a radical departure. This is a step in a completely different direction. It is not more of the same. It is not polishing the fender of the car. It is a new dimension entirely. Now, simple enough. But let me give you a story. I bring this story up because it was at that point that my practice radically changed from the fixing, acquiring, achieving mentality to a different view. And the teacher who gave me this interview, I will not name, but I'm sitting in his seat. (laughs) I was in England. (laughs) And I was trying very hard in my practice. I was a rather rigid yogi. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. And uh, this teacher called me in, asked me to come in for an interview. You know, there's something up when that happens. <laughs> 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 and he said, uh, "I want you to stop trying." And I said, "I don't know what that means." He says, and I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but he, I said, I, I feel like I've paddled across, halfway across the river and you're asking me to throw in my oars. And he says, that's a very nice analogy, but it has nothing to do with what we're doing here. And so for the rest of that retreat, as well as perhaps two years after, I worked with that. And that has dramatically shifted the perspective of what retreating or what spiritual growth is for me. Because I think most of us have to try very hard. It's the only thing we know. We have to stretch our arms out as far as they'll go before our arms get tired and we f- they fall to their sides. We have to try to squeeze it We know nothing else. And so we have to come to the end of effort in order to find ourselves in a new dimension. Now when I talk about this, I do not mean the effort to return and pay attention. I mean the striving, the strenuous, the longing effort to be other than where you are. The effort of self-hatred the effort that most of us have in the West. The effort to be wanting to be different than the way you are. Wanting to be changed, to be modified. To be other than. That's the effort. And most of us think of ourselves as a person who's going to grow into a different person in their spiritual path, on their spiritual path. And we're hoping to be anything other than what we perceive ourselves to be. And we find ourselves in this room with no other choice but to embrace it. remember now that we, who we think we are, our sense of self is also a part of this room. Because now as we talk about transcendence, it's very important to understand that any juggling around that we make or do is just more activity in this mind. There's nowhere to turn There's nothing I can do. There's no movement I can make that isn't just a wave of the mind. And when the sense of self does come up, it's a partition. It's a way of one part of the mind working on another part. You have a part that's a problem. And so one part of the mind sees that as a problem and tries to fix the problem. And it's a room working against itself in a divided consciousness. So all of our struggles, internal, all of our efforts, internal, all of our longing, all of our wanting to be something, are just waves in this room. Again, if I were outside of this room, that's how you fix things, external from it. You can put your hands in there, do whatever you want to, and back off. You're fine. And I think many yogis miss even the first insight of how they are part of this room when they first sit down and they see that they're not in control of their minds, that their minds present a display which they are not asking for whatsoever. And on and on it goes. There's an enormous insight contained in just that simple observation. Because, why can't you fix it? What does it imply in the fact that you can't fix it? That you can't say, okay, mind, stay on the breath and I'll check back with you in 45 minutes. What does that imply? it implies that it's beyond our control. How could it be beyond our control if we owned it? If we are in charge of it? But in fact, we're not. So now we come back to understanding Remembering that the essence of this practice, the spirit of it, can't be in becoming or achieving or modifying because that is just more waves within this consciousness. What's the only strategy that we can employ? We have to employ sight. Looking and seeing. Because look what happens in understanding when we just observe. We're not moving. We're completely attuned, completely absorbed. Just being. Letting whatever information imparts itself to us not making opinions or judgments, not condemning or qualifying that information whatsoever, but an open conduit of just observation, of just seeing. In that same interview, (laughs) many years ago, this teacher said to me, Rodney, you have plenty of samadhi, meaning I could put my attention wherever I wanted and it would stay there. I've been practicing for a number of years, and that kind of harshness of practice does have its payoffs. One of them is being able to focus. And he said, Your moral, ethical behavior seems fine, but he says, You don't have any understanding the first words out of my mouth, how do I get that? (laughs) (laughs) So now comes a leap of faith. Now our arms are tired and we can no longer sustain ourselves on that kind of effort. Because if you're sincere, you'll see its limitations you'll see the limitations of that kind of inward struggle. And if you're sincere, your heart will yearn for something more. And it's the only reason you would do this. And so now comes a leap of faith The first part of our lives, our spiritual lives, have been full of effort, full of striving, full of longing, full of development, full of beautifying the room, full of doing. Now comes a leap of faith of not doing, of just bare attention on something. And for the longest time early on in my practice I couldn't figure out what the salvation was in this. What good does it do to look? What's the payoff of looking? And so you keep looking and really how we look It's very important to get a sense of all of the colorations in the way we look. Do we look to avoid? Do we look to deflect? Do we look for it to go away? There are so many strategies in the way we look. You see, it becomes very subtle. How do we look at our pain in the knee as we opened up to pain today? How are we present with that pain? Are we just waiting for it to go away, to expend itself? Are we sort of looking from a distant, kind of detached way, not intimate with it, but sort of keep it out here and maybe I'll watch it for a while? If we're looking in order to, then our sight is still moving because we're still wanting something out of it. And that is like this kind Of movement and we're looking for this kind of movement of non-movement not this kind of movement because what we'll see is what we want to see in this kind of movement but in this kind of movement of non-movement we'll see what is and so we just hold our flashlight the light of our attention on something Not wanting anything from it. Not being afraid of what it is. But holding it. And may I say that this is metta. Metta is our ability to hold without movement. Someone asked me what the antidote to fear and she thought she said i think the antidote to my fi- to fear is metta and i said no the antidote to your fear is stillness metta is another part of the room that you're moving off to someone asked me what the a- antidote to fear and she thought she said i think the antidote to my fi- to fear is metta and i said no the antidote to your fear is stillness Metta is another part of the room that you're moving off to. May I be happy? May I be better? May I not have so much pain? May other people... It's another part of the room. It's not this. And it has a function to play. It has a balanced usefulness to employ. And so I'm not putting down metta as a skillful means. It's just not this. This is the liberating quality. This is the transcendent quality. Not this. In Thailand, the word understanding is khao entering the heart, entering the heart. Because when there is stillness, when there is non-movement, non-doing in relationship to what is being seen, there is natural metta, a natural expression of affection and appreciation and intimacy. And suddenly the room is not distorted with movement and the room the walls come down because the walls only exist when there is the movement from X to Y to B to C to D back again but when there is quietude and when there is watching and when there is just seeing Then there is infinite space. My father used to do something for us as kids that was very helpful. He would line us up when we had an argument. And he would take the two people who were in argument. And he would say, Rodney, I want you to assume the role of your brother in this argument. And David, my brother, I want you to assume Rodney's role. And I want you to talk from each other's perspective as to what it is, where the trouble lies. So instead of coming over self-righteously, I had to assume the other posture, the other position, and argue from that point of view as to what the problem was. And my punishment depended upon my ability to convince my father that he was right and not me. (laughs) Now, what happens there? When you have to really assume the other person's position... You cannot hold on to your own perspective. And you have to understand. And you can't be angry and understand at the same time. Those two are mutually incompatible. If you really relinquish your self-righteousness and listen to the other person totally so that you understand their position, you are not angry. And so many of the problems that we perceive in this room are due to the lack of us really willing to understand. To hold ourselves steady to the problem. And it turns out that the antidote to all problems is stillness. is understanding. Isn't that wonderful? See, I love that. Doesn't it fit just right into the heart? Because what opens the heart but understanding? What opens the heart but opening yourself to that situation? If you love someone, you are open. You see how it all comes together in this stillness? How the heart is awake? How there's intimacy? How there's passion? Meaning, interest and vitality? Because you're totally there. The mind isn't waving, wishing it were somewhere else. That's just wanting to be in a different part of the room. That's wanting to be over there instead of here. But to embrace it. To allow it totally. You see how that's also metta? It's too easy to go into another part of the room and cultivate something else. To make it nice. To make it pretty. And... As I mentioned, many of us have suffered very difficult childhoods. I'm not in any way negating that at all. And some of us just want some soothing quality in our minds, something to take away some of the difficulty of our upbringing. Some of us, as Christopher mentioned last night, are in such turmoil over our relationships, or occupation, or whatever, and we just want to be soothed. We want comfort. We want a we want a cloister away from the storm. And meditation will give you that. You can find that here. You can look around and suppress. Difficult emotions through your samadhi, through your focus. You can find states of altered consciousness that will make this room as beautiful as you could ever imagine it to be. You can find that. And many people employ those spiritual strategies. That is spiritual achievement. And you get a sense, many of us get a sense that people will be lost in that for long, long periods of time. Because it's so enticing. Think of a mind that doesn't move. Think of a mind that is full of joy think of a mind you think of whatever quality of mind you want if you move it in a certain direction with as much intensity you'll confine that but that is not this and so it's limiting i remember doing a samadhi retreat and the, it was a metta retreat, reciting metta, feeling loving-kindness. And the samadhi captured the metta. As the mind has the ability to capture that state of loving-kindness. And the, this room was filled with loving-kindness. Filled. It was filled. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. And then the next thought was, so what? So what? What, is, how does that, what does that do? How does that I'm stuck here. I could just be stuck here. For eons, I could be stuck here. It's not satisfying. To a heart that wants to move into non-doing into stillness, nothing along the way is going to be satisfying. If your intention is to pursue your freedom then everything else is just a passing show. And we drive our car straight through and willing to sit with difficult states of mind in this corner over here I haven't shown anybody what's in that corner and I have to open to that because it's not just here that I have to put the light. It has to be complete. Total. Every corner. Nothing hidden. Nowhere. And we could be using this meditation to escape, but it won't last We have to face it. I had a friend who did three three three-month courses. And on the third three-month course, I said to him, Wow, you've done a lot of three-month courses. Are you going to sit next year's? And he said, If my father's still living, I'll be here. Meaning that the reason he went into the three-month course was to get away from his father. (laughs) Can you imagine doing that one? That's somewhere else. <laughs> so we have to look at ourselves. We have to say, what do I have to look at? What's coming my way? What do I need to see? Where is there in this room that I am protecting Am i not seeing? I need to Go forth, which is the true meaning of coming forth, going forth. With all the different parts, and bring all those parts. Because in the stillness, all parts are seen. And all the parts then become a whole. And they aren't even parts anymore. Well, meditation is not avoiding an experience. Meditation is not cleaning up the room. Although the room will get very nice in the course of meditation, it's one of the side benefits of prolonged sitting. It gets still, it gets quiet, it gets equanimous, it gets all the things that you read about do happen. But you don't stop there. You don't rest on that. That isn't sufficient. Not to a mind that wants to be free. Not moving towards something or away from anything, but just looking. Just seeing. Just hearing. Just being. The room comes together. And that is the art in the spirit of meditation. Can we sit for a minute or two? Sitting right now. Just being. Not meeting any experience with reaction or reactivity. If we're angry and we're upset with ourselves or being angry, we're just adding fuel to the fire. If we're afraid and we're afraid of looking at fear, then we're just reconditioning that quality back in. If we're impatient and upset with our impatience, we're just Gathering more of the storm, feeding itself. So we stop. We don't do that. So, walking period now.